Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Proverbs 14 and keep your thumb in Luke chapter 3. So two places, uh, Proverbs 14, 34 will be our main text and then Luke, uh, Luke chapter 3, we're just going to look at a few verses there. Uh, I also want to read for you Isaiah 60 verse 12. So make sure your, your finger's in, in Proverbs 14 and your pinky, <laughs> however you want to do it, is in Luke 3. So uh, Isaiah 60, verse 12, and then we'll read the other two passages. These are the words of God. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. And Proverbs 14, 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness being the just principles and actions of, of, of what is, is true, exalts it, it raises to honor a nation. But sin is a reproach. Reproach is something that brings ill will to any people. And then flip to Luke 3, if you like. And I'm only going to read verses 12 through 14. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, to John the Baptist, that is, Teacher, what shall we do? What, what shall we do as tax collectors? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked John the Baptist, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we have come before you in humility, asking you to do a great work in our day. Sadly, our nation has swayed far from righteousness and justice, two things of which your throne consists. We are a disheveled mess from top to bottom, and right now our only recourse is for you to drag us out of the ditch into a state of repentance. The haughtiness, the autonomy, the pomposity we swim in, our arrogance, is an affront to your glory. And for that we are grieved and we are sorry. I ask and pray this day that you would bring your church, your people, to repentance. That we would throw on sackcloth and ashes and stop fiddling around with pietism, antinomianism, and a general apathy. So far, the ostensible cures to societal ills has been far worse than the disease because we think we can slap a thin veneer of statism onto our already burgeoning problem of statism and pretend everything is all better now. We are fickle, Lord. We are heartless. Would you make us anew? I ask for help as I preach this message, and I ask that your spirit would guide both speaker and hearer. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So today I'd like to give an election day sermon or an election season sermon. Righteousness exalts a nation is what we're calling it straight from Proverbs 14. And for some of you here, that may be a very, very new concept for you. Election day sermon. What in the world? I've never heard of such things. Well, you should know that the Puritans and the early churchmen of those who founded America would often do election day sermons. They would often do these types of things as a means to stir people to action, that's one, one aspect of it, uh, you know, the whole, hey, we're, we're, the sermons are being preached and the redcoats are coming, that sort of thing. 
So to stir people to action and to also announce the justice and righteousness that God requires both of political leaders and political constituents like us. So my goal is to exhort you to consider key biblical texts and also ethical parameters to hopefully navigate our current season. So that's my goal. Hopefully I'll, I'll have achieved that. <clears throat> so these, these election day sermons, by the way, are a rarity in our day. Uh, they weren't a rarity back then, but they are in our day, which is, of course, a symptom of a problem, and that's not a badge of honor. The trouble, of course, stems from, from this, and this is what I believe, it stems from a truncation of what our most basic confession means. Christianity is built on a confession, and that confession has been smashed down and stuffed into a very small box. And that confession is Jesus is Lord. Okay? It's been truncated. We confess that Jesus is Lord, and frankly, modern Christians today want that confession to stay between your ears and only between your ears. Keep it in your head. That's it. But the early Christians knew quite well that when one claims the lordship of Christ, she is claiming the total and inexorable lordship of Christ over everyone and everything, including Caesar. So the apostles, (laughs) you should know that the apostles did not get thrown out of cities for believing that Jesus was Lord in their hearts and only in their hearts. That's not why they got tossed out. Listen to Acts 17, 6 and 7. It reads this. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Another king that's not Caesar? Yes and amen. Okay, they weren't thrown out of cities because they just believed in Jesus in their heart and everything was hunky-dory. They had a message, a rival message, and that confounded the people, uh, especially the political uh, people who had a particular investment, investment into Caesar and his kingdom. So these were not apathetic Christians who rolled over to Caesar's tyrannical executive rule. They didn't cower and shy away from the implications of the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, notice in that text, uh, they've turned the world upside down and now they're here. Oh no, what do we do? Okay, so word had gotten out. So they didn't cower, they didn't shy away from these things. In fact, they challenged the authority of Caesar by simply confessing the truth that Jesus Christ has been established as Israel's Messiah, and thus, because of that, the Lord's, or excuse me, the world's true Lord. That's the confession. So yes, because I hear this argument all the time and it's frustrating, yes, we have examples in the New Testament of Christians subverting the system. Subverting the system. They don't tell you Oh, they're saying that there's another king other than Caesar. Okay, they didn't say that in response because they were quiet about it. They said it because they were loud about it. They were vocal about it. They were preachers of this king. So we have examples of Christians subverting the system. And we also have examples in the Old Testament as well. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. The Presbyterian... um, uh, 
uh, theologian J. Gresham Machen. Some of you may recognize that name. But he wrote this in 1925. In 1925, he said, A new and more powerful proclamation of God's law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. A new and more powerful proclamation of God's law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. I agree with Machen. I agree with him. There are a lot of pressing issues today. Okay, infanticide, child sacrifice, abortion on demand. Thousands every year. Thousands. They're um, suffocating tax collection. Okay? Just go try to get a building permit thing sorted out. And then you quickly find there's a lot of red tape and you will trip all over it all day. Suffocating tax collection. Unrestricted executive power. Unrestricted executive power. The very thing that people wrote, the founding fathers wrote against the king in England. You keep using executive power. So we don't like that. We are declaring ourselves independent. What are we doing today? The same stuff. Bureaucratic red tape. Erosion of medical freedom. All right, erosion of medical freedom. The ability to decide whether or not you want toxicity in your veins. Also, um, property rights. You know, people celebrate, we're gonna have a mortgage burning ceremony, we paid off our mortgage. Yeah, you still pay rent to the state. Okay, there's a laundry list of issues. Debt, all right? You don't get to go into debt each year just willy-nilly, because you are not allowed to print the same money that they do in the mints all around the U.S. Yeah, that's a crime, but they get to do it. Here we are. So the list is endless. You can go to the RestoreFauquierCounty.com website. You can see I put a ton of those in there so as to demonstrate the folly of what we have going on right now. So there are immoralities piled on top of immoralities, and honestly, it's tough to sort it all out. At some point, the, heap, the, the pile is so big, how could you ever find what you're looking for? At the end of the day, what we have going on right now in our nation is an unbridled lust to do as man pleases and not what pleases God. Okay, So statism is the ugly tree. The gospel of the kingdom is the axe. And we mean, this means we must take the axe to the root. Now, unless you've been living in a hole... I think you're well aware we are facing another presidential election and either Joe Biden will win or Donald Trump will be reelected. Okay, and I think Donald Trump will be reelected and get a second term. That's my hunch. Uh, just by momentum and other things that we see going on around us, uh, I think that's probably what's going to happen. Now, if we're really blessed, no one will win and we'll just leave the seat empty. But in light of this, what I want to do today is essentially just explore the ethical nature of our current predicament, offer up a biblical reason perspective, and perhaps offer some insight on voting. And um, lest anyone get nervous, we are not a 501c3, so we get to say whatever we want. And so there's no foolishness there. So two texts. Back in Proverbs. Look at Proverbs real quick. Proverbs 14.34. So we're told that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness, that is the ethical and judicial nature of biblical law. That is righteousness. Those principles 
are righteous. It exalts, or the word could be also rendered, it raises to honor a nation. Now, the word, the word nation there could actually be, usually in the Bible, sometimes it refers to Gentiles or heathen nations. Usually a non-Hebrew nation is in, viewed, in view in, this, um, in these types of texts. But probably the writer is simply means that there's a group of people in some sort of organized fashion. So a group of people in some sort of organized fashion, whether that's a tribe in the remote parts of Africa or South America, or a collective, what we call the United States of America. Um, you might as well throw another S in there, the USSA. Uh, the other S being Soviet. Um, so you, you have a collection of people, a nation. So righteousness, God's law, if you will, biblical law, purity in terms of conduct, exalts. It raises to honor those people who are constituents and make up this collective. So, so the implication of the ethical and judicial principles found in God's law word takes that people and raises them up from dishonor to honor. There's a status of dishonor, and now they're going to a status of, of honor. So it raises or it exalts them. And think of it this way. Covenantally speaking, this is consistent with what we find in other passages of Scripture. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 28... 1 through 14, you have the blessings of the covenant. We find that nations who honor the covenant law of God are blessed in just about every single way. They are blessed, economically speaking, agriculturally, socially, politically, and so on, in every single way. 14 verses in Deuteronomy 28. Now, the second half of Proverbs 14:34 is interesting. So you have righteousness exalts a nation. But sin, that is the missing of the mark of God's law and his righteousness, is a reproach to any people. It literally brings ill will to people. So this verse simply says, if America won't fall on its knees in repentance and start governing, governing wisely in terms of God's way, then it's not going to go from dishonor to honor. It's going to go quickly into the trash heap of history to dishonor. So the same problem is in Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68, okay? First 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28, 28 are blessings. If you do this, blessings come. But then 15 through 68, curses. Pretty heavy-handed stuff. So this is the same covenantal problem, namely curses for disobedience. Property rights are stripped away. There are millions of people who have lived in societies in history that had no property rights whatsoever. None. Taxation is levied against people. Destruction ensues. The social order collapses. There's a similar sentiment stated in Proverbs 16.12. You may have heard this. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. So it is detestable for kings and rulers and congressmen and even county supervisors to do evil. It's detestable. Why? For the throne, the magistracy, the, that's established by righteousness. In other words, legitimate authority and power is only legitimate to the degree that it aligns with the righteousness of God according to God's law word. So you get, you know, this whole mindset. I've said this before. But crossing crown kids, we're not teaching you to respect authority. 
we're teaching you to question whether or not that authority is legitimate. And if it's not legitimate, it should not be respected. It should be jeered. It should be subtly undermined. It should be perhaps even mocked as, uh, as Elijah had done to the prophets of Baal. Legitimate authority is the key, and it's only legitimate to the degree that it aligns with God and His Word. Otherwise, it's not legitimate. It should be disregarded. It should be ignored. That's why we can't try to get our sheriff locally to think about these things. If, if, if these laws continue to be passed, if they start passing out COVID vaccines, they already have people dying in trials. Yeah, no, no. You don't get to encroach on my bodily autonomy. And if you, Sheriff, can't interpose, well, we'll get somebody else to run. So if it isn't just, if it isn't righteous, it's deplorable and it should be dismissed. So how do we apply this today, though? Does it apply today? Isn't that just Old Testament? What, what sh who should we vote for? Should we even vote? How do we even participate in these sort of things? How do, we, how do we sort out the issues when both sides of the aisle get things wrong? Before I answer that question, though, I want you to turn to Luke 3. And I'm going to read verses 12 through 14 again. I want, I want you to go there and I want you to see this here in the passage. Remember, John the Baptist is out baptizing people. It's a sign of repentance. People are coming to him as a sign of repentance, as a sign of national revival. And he's preparing the way. The Messiah is coming. Everybody get ready. Jesus, you know, his cousin, John the Baptist's cousin, is coming. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So people are coming to him. And guess who's coming to him? Horrible, wretched people. Horrible, wretched people. Of which, you have two categories here. Tax collectors and soldiers. Corrupt people. Big time. Bureaucratic corruption. They come to him and here's what is said. Luke 3, verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Huh. Interesting. Like today, the early Christians found themselves up against a Revelation 13 beast of an empire. One which used executive power to quite literally suppress and squash any rival worldviews. If Rome wanted to come and take your property, they came and take, take, took your property. You couldn't take it back. If you tried, they just take the sword to you. That's the Roman way. Sound familiar? You will have a democracy or we will bomb you into it. Okay? Force, aggression, executive power. The boot of Rome was very large and the Christians quickly found themselves to be at the bottom of said boot. The question for us becomes this though. How do Christians function when the encroaching state has its dirty hands in everything? What is our relationship to the state? Do we even have to have a theology of the state, or do we just sort of go along to get along? What is our theology of it? We need, my argument is we need a theology of the state, by the way, and unfortunately this is not taught in our pulpits, and, and it's very 
deafening, frankly, the silence. Do we participate in the pagan government or do we run and hide? Is it wrong for someone to be employed by such governmental bureaucracies, especially when they're doing things that are inconsistent with God's desires in his law? All right, so what if you're a Christian and you're in D.C. and you work for the IRS? Talk about despicable. The IRS. Unconstitutional thing anyway. But what do we do in this situation? How do we, how do, what about voting? How do, how do we participate in this whole system? Luke 3, I think, helps answers, answer the question. First up were the tax collectors. Tax collecting in the Roman world was farmed out to those who would dare to embrace the job of confiscatory tax collecting, taking it by force. Usually an independent contractor, what we call an independent contractor, who won the bid, he would take inventory of his locale, his region, he would guess how much money he could extort from people, he would go and place his bid, and if the Roman leaders like that, then he, if he wins the bid, then guess what he gets to do? He gets to go and collect taxes. He, he goes his happy way. Sometimes soldiers would help by enforcing Rome's policies. Sometimes that they would help the tax collecting too. So in order to make a living, think about this, in order to make a living, a tax collector had to take extra money from unsuspecting people in order to pay his bills. So he said, all right, I can guarantee you in Fauquier County, I can tax a million dollars, but I got to figure out a way to get, you know, a million and a half so that I can pay my bills. That's the Roman world. That's the tax collecting system in first century Palestine. So Zacchaeus, if you remember the story of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was a, a wee little man. That's sad. What a terrible thing to teach. No, Zacchaeus was a good example. And, and he climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Man, I'm having like old school VBS flashbacks. But he was a tax collector. He did some terrible things. And then he comes to Christ. And what does he do? He goes and seeks restitution. He gives it all back times some, times 20%, which is actually biblical law. So Zacchaeus was one. So think about this. John the Baptist baptizing these tax collectors, he tells them to keep their cushy government job, but to refrain from extorting people. Hmm. They weren't to take extra, only that was required by Rome. How in the world will they live? So are you stunned at John's response? Next were the soldiers. Whether Jewish or Roman soldiers, it doesn't really matter. Probably they were Jewish soldiers, but they were the police officers of the day. Like today's policemen, whose jobs are primarily to go around and collect revenue, they had the power to go above and beyond by stealing, planting evidence, being executive bullies with a badge. Not much has changed. That's the first century world of the soldiers. So John says that they should be content with their wages and to show some level of self-government by not being a lying, thieving bully. Hmm. Are you stunned? Shouldn't have John told them to just quit working altogether? How could you participate in the pagan Roman government, for crying out loud? Shouldn't they just quit their jobs? 
to get a real job in the private sector, to risk their livelihoods for what they know is, is right. Isn't that what a principled person would do? Doesn't that seem like pragmatism? Is John the Baptist a pragmatic person? Or is he a principled person? Maybe it's possible to be both. Why would he offer this wisdom when clearly the problem of executive power had flooded society and caused so much pain and turmoil? If you lived in first century Palestine after Jesus' death and resurrection, right up before the Jewish-Roman wars where the Romans had killed millions of Jews, millions, executive power had caused so much pain and turmoil. And the answer is this. Okay, here's the answer. Why would John the Baptist offer this advice to tax collectors and to soldiers? Here's why. Because Christianity is not a scorched earth, flash in the pan, guns a-blazing faith. But we need to be patient in history, faithfully discharging our duties and responsibilities with the goal of supplanting the humanist institutions of man with the kingdom institutions of Christ. That's the goal. John probably told them to stay put, do a good job, do be righteous, and blow the whole thing up. So examples like this abound. Joseph in the Old Testament, the judges would oftentimes function in this capacity. Uh, Nehemiah did as well. Remember, Nehemiah was a cupbearer of the king. Um, You you even think of um, the story of Esther, Daniel as well, so on. There's all these examples of how do you function in a pagan government situation? How do you function? See, we confess that Christianity unfolds in history under the sovereign orchestration of God. History is governed by God, not pagans. And our task is to participate in this orchestration by faithfully um, effectuating Christian ethics with the goal of undermining the pagan system. Okay? So here's our, this is basic Christianity here. God controls history. We participate in the history. And the way we participate is by effectuating, putting into effect Christian ethics along the way with the goal of undermining the pagan system. So let's explore this a little bit more. When Jesus Christ died on a Roman cross, and he was raised on the third day, he unleashed upon the world the most, one of the most powerful, earth-shattering forces known to man and known to history, something no man or no state could ever possibly ever take away, that being the Holy Spirit-empowered, self-governing man. That's what Christ unleashed on the world. The Holy Spirit-empowered, self-governing man. You might not think that's powerful, but it is. This new Adam created new humans, freed from the chains of sin, freed from the chains of guilt, freed from the power and grip of Satan and death. Having liberated these people from evil, King Jesus armed them with the only weapon known to slay enemies and their pagan institutions without shedding an ounce of blood, that being the word of God. It's the reason the Word of God is called a sword and not a Nerf gun. 
See, the ecclesia, the church of God, freed from sin, equipped with the very word of God, and empowered to govern themselves by being servants and not lording it over like the Gentiles do, Jesus says elsewhere, thus became a bulwark in history, shattering the darkness, shattering evil, taking the land, and reclaiming it for the gospel of the kingdom. Okay? You, we read Psalm 18 earlier. That's our text. We fight. Okay? Many Christians today are very uncomfortable with the language of God equipping our hands for war. But our war isn't primarily with bullets and guns and tanks, though I am majorly in favor of the Second Amendment, so much so that I wish I, I, I should be able to get a tank if I want a tank. I should be able to get an F-15 if I want an F-15. Amen? Somebody say amen. We should, all right? <laughs> if I want that, I should be able to get that. That's a good thing. It's, but we don't need that primarily as a mode of our fighting. Our fighting isn't with violence and blood, the mistakes that many Christians have made in history. Our fighting is with humility and joy, feasting together, laughing together. And undermining everything else we see around us that does not bow to the knee of Christ. You see, this unique power of self-government liberated nations from the grip of executive power and overreach. Western civilization was built on this. The Reformation perpetuated self-government of man. It didn't need a top-down executive power to do it. That came later. See, instead of civil governments controlling every aspect of life, which is a rancid fruit of the Enlightenment, the individual was rightly believed to have been endowed with basic God-given rights, and thus there was no need for an executive nanny police state, for he could work locally to, to establish justice in the judicial system, and then he could affirm the responsibility of self-government. I, today, you talk about reforming and, and various things with regards to the police and these other issues, and people have lost their minds. How in the world? Why do you stop at a traffic light? Why, isn't, why do you stop at a traffic light? Maybe that. Could be, could be pragmatic, right? It, it works. That way, I don't get, of course, you get rear-ended as some of us more, more recently have learned, uh, Michael. <laughs> but no one coerced you to do it, though, right? You didn't have to have a police officer, you know, 100 yards up, hey, you better stop up there when it turns red. Because you govern yourself. That's the answer. But why do we think we need top-down executive privilege and power exerted on every other area of life? And we don't trust the self-governing man. Now, some people can't govern themselves. That's where the state should enact justice, but here we are. But what happens? What, what happens when Christians listen to the enemies of Christ and they do prefer to just go and pound sand when they're told that? Oh, okay, good idea. I think I'll just go do something menial here. What, do we, what happens when we just give it up? When self-government wanes and more status controls take over, when Christians would prefer in a fit of fruitless retreat to just sit on the sidelines and refuse to put forth any efforts towards kingdom change in the world. What happens when Christians prefer that strategy? I'll tell you what happens. The abortion holocaust. 
What I'm suggesting today is that retreatism isn't an option. It wasn't John's approach. He could have said, quit your jobs, tax collectors and soldiers, and just run away. Retreatism isn't the answer. It wasn't the answer for Jesus as well. And the election, by the way, every four years, shouldn't be the only time Christians get off the couch and do something. <laughs> I know. I, if the extent of your political action is putting up a yard sign every four years, might I suggest you're probably doing it wrong? Instead, those who name the name of Christ ought to be active and ought to be present within the realm of civil government seeking to mitigate and undermine its tyranny. And while there are Christians involved, we need the sort of Christians who understand these concepts, who are willing to put the biblical worldview into practice with the goal of subverting the system towards a God-honoring ethic of biblical governance. Now, don't get caught up on the word subverting, by the way. Sometimes today, subversion is simply being a constitutionalist. You're a subversive. Why? Because I think the Second Amendment's a good idea. See, it's important to note that the most, most of the time, they're the ones doing the subversion. They are the aberration. We are grounded. We're the grounded ones walking upright and straight. When, when this is, can apply to liberals and it can apply to apply to conservatives too. But when liberals or conservatives, for that matter, choose to chart a new course away from the biblical path, we are the ones who must walk on the road of righteousness. But just be prepared to be told that you're the one who has strayed. Nonsense. Righteousness, like yeast, has to go in the dough to have its effect. And here's what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist told his yeast disciples to stay put and from there leaven the whole Roman loaf. That's what he told them. That's what salt does. That's what light does. The very thing Jesus tells us we must be. But what about voting and our participation in the election of our leaders? What happens when it goes sideways? First, what I'm about to say is not to be construed as trying to bind your conscience. Your conscience needs to be bound by the word of God, not some man, not some priest, not you know, anyone else. Your conscience should be bound by the word of God. Now, you may be convinced that being a dissident is the right option. You just, you just don't want to vote. The whole system's corrupt. You don't want to vote this year. You're out. All right? Fine. <laughs> Let no man judge you. You are accountable to God. Not me, not anyone else in this room. But like many Christians, you may be forced to consider what is actually the false dilemma of the lesser of two evils. And I'm going to be very nuanced here. So let me, let me uh, I say it's a false dilemma. Here's why. Biblical law, if we understand scripture, biblical law has no place for executive or legislative branches of government. Only a judiciary, the courts. Okay? God's Whenever biblical law in terms of reformation, self-governments, uh, the only reason you had the, the three branches of government come up in history, by the way, not because it's found necessarily in scripture, but you had it come out of the enlightenment. You had the French Revolution on one side. They were the pagans who just said, well, let's just kill everyone we don't like. But then you had the right wing of the enlightenment. You had men like John Locke, who had such an impression on Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and the founding fathers. They, the, the Scottish or English side of the enlightenment. 
So they're the ones that kind of came up with the separation of powers and all the, the three branches of government that we have today. But my argument is biblical law has no place for either. You don't need to create new laws. God's is sufficient. And you don't need an executive bully to tell you what to do. So why do we need that? We don't. We need, we need justices and court systems through the means of jury nullification and things like that to actually see that justice is done. If it's not a crime and there's no justice, get the heck out of my way. I don't need you. We don't need it. We don't need bullies telling you what to do. Land pirates pulling you over to pay another tax. Don't need it. So my argument, and this is, I can, we can talk later about verses that back that up if you like, but biblical law has no place for executive or legislative branches of government. Only judiciary, only the courts. So with that conviction, I don't believe that there's actually a lesser evil overall, like a lesser overall evil, for both political parties, in my estimation, are perpetuating the same evil practice of executive power. Okay? So framing, framing it like that, both parties are still perpetuating the idea that executive power is the way to go. So... Think of it as five years ago. Obama is president, and he's writing executive orders. And Christians moan and groan, oh, no, no more executive orders. And then Trump's elected, and he writes executive orders. Yay, Trump, write more. We have a problem. We have a major problem. We don't, we don't want executive orders at all. Okay? That's, that's not law. Suddenly, it's not the rule of law anymore. The king is law. And that's the very thing people bled and fought over in the English Civil War and uh, other historical things connected to, to England and then America. So I think both parties are perpetuating. I do believe, and I'm going to nuance this, I do believe the Republican ticket to have certain strategic advantages over the Democratic ticket, meaning that it may provide us some temporal or temporary room to maneuver to some degree. But that's not the same thing as saying that I believe the Republican ticket is righteous through and through. It's not. I don't think we have the lesser of two evil option because the whole framing of executive power is unbiblical. So framing it like that, I think we have, you know, but I do think there are certain strategic advantages. So I'm not saying hey, one's righteous all the way through. Can't make that argument. Far from it. Now, this is where wisdom and conviction from Scripture comes in. Like John the Baptist's disciples, we too participate with some degree of culpability, it depends on the issue, in the furtherance of statism and injustice. Okay, that's, we're in the system. Okay, you're in it. You're American. You're participating in it to some degree. They are our leaders, and we put them there. And you might say, well, I didn't vote for them. I didn't vote for Trump four years ago. I didn't put him in office. But in a sense, I did. We're still perpetuating the system, and it, it, there's a problem there. So fine, maybe you didn't vote, but someone did. Someone keeps pushing this thing off the side of the cliff, which means we need to do something, and in this case, Here's my argument. Principle doesn't mean retreatism. Okay, it doesn't mean retreatism. And pragmatism doesn't mean necessarily compromise. Sometimes principle means playing 
chess and forfeiting a pawn to protect your queen. Not confessing your love, your Valentine love, to your president. Now, regarding, regarding voting, to start, in our current system, voting is not the same thing as lauding a candidate. Voting is not the same thing as lauding a candidate. When I go to the ballot box, I do so with a nose pin firmly secured, okay? It stinks, I don't like it. It stinks and I don't like it. Now, to mix metaphors, we're playing a game with rules that I don't like. We're playing, we're in a system with rules that are going on that I just don't like. Um, I'm chained to the table with a gun to my head, forced to play with, forced to play Monopoly with my opponent, the federal government, um, the civil government, and conveniently, they're the ones in charge of the bank. <laughs> and they keep wanting more. And they keep double dipping. And there's all these problems. They keep asking for more. And as you might suspect, I'm also told to wear a mask at the table because we're not six feet apart, which is another tyranny on top of another bunch of tyrannies. But, but me playing the game carefully and strategically doesn't mean I'm praising my opponent. You catch the metaphor? Me playing the game and trying to outmaneuver or undermine my opponent is not me lauding and praising my opponent in the game. That's not the same thing. It means I'm actually trying to end the madness, actually. The state has given us some options to choose, and it's going to come down to Biden or Trump. I don't like either, but I don't like either differently and for different reasons. In fact, I don't like one more than I don't like the other, if that makes sense. But the gun is to my head, and the state has told me to choose. And I don't want either. I want to abolish the entire thing. And while I can bail out and walk away, and I respect those who in their conscience decide that they want to do that, I do know that there are some strategic differences between the two. Okay? Um, it was some things said this week. Um, Eight-year-olds and surgery, deciding to switch hit, if you all right? I'm speaking in uh, code here, all right? <laughs> uh, national mask mandates, Biden has said, if I'm president, I'm, I'm forcing a national mandate. Fauci keeps saying his nonsense. Major tax increases, there's a difference there. Healthcare penalties, <laughs> no thanks. See, the, the Democrat problem is unbridled paganism through and through, even if they get one or two things right. Fine. The Republican problem is unbridled paganism with a veneer of Christianity that at best is hypocrisy. We're going to end abortion. Yep, absolutely. Still haven't done it. But there is a difference, at least strategically, not morally, not even covenantally, because both systems are wicked. It's perpetuating the same executive problem. Listen, I'm not naive. I don't pretend for one second that Trump is a bastion of righteousness. Far from it. Again, the system is corrupted. It's unbiblical. Republicans in the first two years of Trump's presidency could have, they had the majority in Congress, they could have abolished abortion. They could have ended it. They could have ended it and forced it to go to the Supreme Court, and huh, ostensibly conservative judges could have reversed Roe, possibly. 
But they didn't do it. They didn't even do something as so simple as defunding Planned Parenthood. They still pushed that through. Why? They don't have any courage. They don't have any courage. That's frustrating. But I, but I also know that I have four years of Trump to work with. He's done a few good things, and he's done some dumb things. And I'm conflicted, but I'm not so conflicted that I'm rendered useless. So with that said, here's where I'm at. <clears throat> we are in a fight. We are in a fight, but we can't just call a timeout, stop the game, regroup ourselves, right? Get our act together, and then, okay, well, now we're going to go fight some more. We're not, in, we're not afforded that position. We have to string, uh, think strategically, judicially, and with wisdom and repentance governing all of it. Wisdom and repentance has to govern all of our strategy, all of our wisdom, anything that we can come up with from Scripture. So we are in a fight against statism now, and we are neck deep in it. So biblically, we have to cry out to God in the battle. You don't wait till the battle's over to cry out. You cry out in the battle. Listen to 1 Chronicles 5.20. And when they prevailed over them, the Hagrites and all who were with them were given into their hands, for they cried out to God in the battle, and he granted their urgent plea because they trusted in him. So we need to cry out now, not later. But long before voting, we need to be repenting and repenting a lot, and no one... No one should be casting their vote for Trump. I'm speaking to conservatives here. No one should be casting their vote for Trump with a slight grin on their faces, believing that they're just going to go ahead and stick it to the libtards. No one should be doing that. That's not a winsome and judicious move. That's you thinking you're cute with funny words. Crass language aside, we are not afforded at the moment a vote for righteousness. If you, if you plan to vote for Trump, believing him to be the better choice, then do it with repentance in your heart, a game plan in your mind, and not a skip of pride in your step. Pride has no room here, and we are not in a covenanted nation with strict character requirements as outlined in Exodus 18. But that's the goal. We're not there yet. You know where we are? We're in Babylon. And it stinks. The sewage system is broken. Back to our initial question. Is it possible to participate in American politics, which is corrupt in all quarters, and still remain righteous and not culpable for the evil that it perpetuates? According to John the Baptist, the answer is yes. Yes. But corruption, we know, starts in the heart of a man. And if it's not squashed with the grace of repentance, then it will spill over into your neighbor's yard, and then we'll have lost our witness. So let's not boast in any candidate. Let's not boast. Our boast is Christ. Our boast is his law word. Our boast is not any one person other than Jesus. So what we need right now from the church is a consistent ethical and judicial righteousness and justice message. Pastors and churchmen have been riding the fence of neutrality for decades. Is it really all that surprising that the weeds have sprung up and has been turned into this disheveled mess of the American backyard? These types of sermons used to be preached all the time, and you can't find them much anymore today. See, we need to repent for thinking that our rights and liberties belong to the magistrates who are free to take them or give them at any moment. We need to repent for trusting in the executive state. We need to repent for refusing to fight when our preborn neighbors have their limbs torn from them. 
We need to repent for thinking that the only solution is just to vote every four years. We need to repent for treating our neighbors with disdain at the border. We need to repent for a laundry list of injustices. And we need to repent for thinking and believing that the executive state is somehow going to rein itself in. I'll get spending under control. I'll reduce the deficit. They all say it. None of them do it. It is righteousness that exalts a nation, not the partisan majority. And we also need to repent for being so dang fearful. So fearful. Any moral strength that we have left needs to be exerted on defending the least of these, not boasting an obloviating candidate who still continues to see it, see to it that the executive state goes on. So, I'm prepared to buy some time for my family and I because I know what the Democrats want and I don't know what they'll do and I only want a little bit of what the Republicans say they want because I've seen them only do a little bit. That's where I'm at. So I don't believe my vote is a covenantal act because the executive state is immoral and it is unrighteous. It's not a biblical government. We don't want the executive state. We want a judicial state. We want the law of God and the courts. Uh, so my, my vote this year is only strategic. It's only strategic. It's a strategic defense mechanism um, like, like meat sacrificed to idols. It doesn't really apply to a just system, and it never will, not as it is now. So it's a very temporal participation in a wicked system that God hates, an opportunity afforded to me in the here and now, something that needs to be mitigated. Evil needs to be mitigated and it needs to be undermined to some degree when God sovereignly decides. So th think of it this way, and <laughs> I have a gun to my head. The state is telling me these are my options, and I'm going to, as Jordan has said, decide to get whacked in the head with a stick rather than a wrench. Lesser taxes help than having more taxes. It helps. Um, not being penalized for not participating in the socialized medicine scheme helps my family. Biden has already said, we're going back to the penalty. Great. Thank you. You don't, you don't pay for health insurance? We're going to tax you for it. And so on. Because the executive state is immoral and because the long game for me is to undermine the entire thing, I'm going to make a strategic choice to see to it by faith that I have less obstacles on my march to disciple this nation. Are you tracking? No doubt we deserve the wrath we, we are experiencing. And if we want to buy time, which is a biblical principle, it's the fifth point of the covenant model. Nineveh bought time, for example, by repenting. If we want to buy time, then buy it. But for crying out loud, don't waste it. Don't waste it. Don't be so fooled as to think that the Republicans are going to expend all of their energies on deregulation and the abolition of abortion, the privatization of health care, and so on. There are liars on both sides of the aisle, which means there's a whole lot of light that needs to be shined in both. And it won't happen if we ignorantly and wishfully think that one guy in one election, the most important election of our lifetime every four years, is going to magically snap his fingers and fix it. See, if righteousness exalts a nation and sin brings ill onto people, then it is clear that what, what, what must be done. We need to cry out for deliverance. 
We need to start working locally. Perhaps peaceful secession talks need to be amped up. If your sheriff and county supervisors don't know you and your church, then you're doing something wrong. Localism is where it's going to change. When biblical theocracy is replaced by humanist democracy, someone always gets hurt because it's a power tactic, not a servant tactic. And one final thought here. Top-down change doesn't work, which is why I'm okay participating in this election the way that I intend to participate. Top-down change is humanist-centered. Bottom-up localism with a focus on self-government is freedom, um, freedom and Christianity. We want to abolish the executive state and establish the, the judicial state, which is the biblical model. So if that's our goal, and it is, then don't get caught up in the worship and prostration of getting the right guy is always going to magically make things better overnight. Please don't go get a Trump tattoo. I beg of you. There is no right guy in the executive police state. There is only Jesus. There is only his gospel, his kingdom, his self-governing people, and his justice through the courts. No amount of voting, no amount of centralization, and naivety will ever do the trick. So if we're going to undermine the thing, let's undermine the thing. But in the meantime, let us cast ourselves on his mercy despite our own foolishness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the principles we have therein. We are convinced that your word carries weight and that it is authoritative in every sense of the word. Father, we, we are in a unique situation in history, but in another sense, it's not all that unique. Christians for thousands of years have been under the boot of tyranny. And the only way out for us is to acknowledge that your word does speak to these issues. Father, we know we deserve judgment. And in fact, we are getting that as we speak. But we also know that your loving kindness is much more pervasive and much more preferable. So Father, we ask that your son would be acknowledged and honored that your Holy Spirit would strike to the hearts of politicians and voters and Christians across this nation. We want to exalt you because we know that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin and evil and wickedness is a reproach to any people. So we look to your word. We ask for blessing, not cursing. But before any of that, we ask for repentance. In Christ's name I pray, amen.